Well, I have enjoyed moving through the book of Deuteronomy with you. I'm always sad to see a book end, although I always get excited about the next one, so that's always the <laughs> up and the down of that. Uh, but the book of Deuteronomy, uh, I think often just underestimated for the power of what it is presenting, that this is not just simply, hey, Israel, let me remind you of a few things about the law, but powerful messages, powerful sermons by Moses as he teaches the people with these final statements and his final breaths, his final days before Israel and telling them what they must do to be successful as they come into the land of Canaan to finally receive the promised land that God had been speaking to them not only for all of their generation, but their their forefathers as well. And now they're on the brink of entering that land and enjoying those promises. Deuteronomy 31 through 34 is then the final words of Moses as he's going to pass the torch on to Joshua, who will be the one to bring in people into the promised land. So let's listen to some of the things that Moses says uh, in these final words and note the final important messages of what it takes in being God's people and to enjoy the promises that lie ahead. In Deuteronomy 31, so it reads there in Deuteronomy 31, so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And, as, and, the, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do them according to the whole co- do to them according to the commandments that I commanded you. Be strong and courageous; do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you; He will not leave you or forsake you. And then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him on the side of all Israel, "Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them." And you shall put put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Opening message that Moses has is, I love, I'm 120 years old and essentially my time has come. And we'll see shortly why his time has come. And he brings it out a little bit right here. In that God has told him he's no longer allowed to lead the people. And he reminds them that it's because of ultimately his own rebellion that God had said that to them. But they were not to be discouraged by this, that Moses was not going to be able to finish the task. He turns to them and says, it is the Lord who's going to be your leader. The Lord will be the one who's going to bring you into this land. He's going to destroy the enemies. He's going to give you possession of the land. And Joshua is going to be the one that will be at the forefront of all of this, who's going to bring you into this promised land. So that ultimately then their hope was not to be in Moses. And their hope was not to be resting completely on somebody else, but rather 
that they could be strong and courageous with this knowledge. That God would be the one who would go before them. God will be their leader. God would not leave them or forsake them. He turns and summons Joshua and tells him the same thing. You be strong and courageous and the Lord is not going to leave you. And we are going to go into this land. And you guys are going to be able to enjoy all that God has ever promised. But as for him, he is not going to be able to enjoy the promised land. With that in mind, from verse 19 to verse thir- verse 9, excuse me, verse 9 to verse 13, what God then tells Moses to do is to write down the law and give it to the priests and give it to the elders of Israel. And so here we have copies of the law that are being given, and what they're supposed to do is every 7 years they were to assemble and they were to listen And they were to fear the Lord and they would listen to all the words of the law and be careful to do them. And I think it is interesting that he actually highlights there uh, in verse 11, assembling the people, men, women, the little ones, the sojourners within your towns. There is nobody to be excluded from this. I like that. Even the kids. I want you to hear what God has to say. They aren't like put in another room. Okay, guys, go play while we listen to the law. Everybody listen to this law to have this assembly happen so the people would know the law of God. And I think it's important. Sometimes we might read that and go every seven years. So does that mean nobody ever listened to the law for seven whole years and then, you know, they you know trod the law out every once in a while, once every seven years? And I don't think that should be the way that we would read that. Because remember, the whole point of the priesthood, one of the key points of the priesthood is in teaching the people the law, teaching them the ways of God. It wasn't that, okay, we pull out the scroll and now we stow it away forever to never be looked at again. Uh, unfortunately, part of Israel's history is that actually did happen. <laughs> the scroll, the laws, law for a time and nobody knows what the law is but that's God's condemnation on them for that happening so there was supposed to be this formal assembly every seven years but that's not to indicate that God thinks you only should listen to his law once every seven years but that this was really a calling for all of Israel imagine bringing them for as far as they were supposed to be spread and they would all come together and be as one person and just listen to the laws of God all together one more time But that doesn't negate that they'd be listening to God's laws daily and weekly through the sacrifices that they would offer and the various festivals that they would keep in their lands while they were uh, over on the Jordan. And in verse 14, the Lord then also tells Moses that it is time to commission Joshua. And it happens in such a powerful way. In in this paragraph, really to the end of the chapter, you have a pillar of cloud uh, appearing. And so the Lord is going to come down and and appear in this pillar of cloud uh, in verse uh, 15. And you notice that the Lord does that and stands over the entrance of the tent. And now the Lord tells Moses some really interesting things as he comes down. You know, as I think about what the Lord is going to tell him, I would think, okay, I've given my whole life to leading the people to this point. Tell me some good news about how it's going to go when I die and they're going to go into the land. And rather than that happening, as the Lord comes down in this pillar of cloud before Joshua and Moses, you'll notice it says in verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, 
And then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say on that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to the other gods. What what an ending here is here's the final days of Moses and God says, now I want you to know what's going to happen. As soon as you die, they're going to enter the land and they're going to completely forsake me. They're going to completely not do anything that we have commanded them to do. In my mind, I would be like the whole book of Deuteronomy and all of my sermons were a waste. Because they're going to go in and do the very thing that all of these sermons that Moses has proclaimed was told them not to do. And yet they're going to do it anyway. They're going to forsake God. They're going to go after their other gods. They're going to commit all kinds of sins. And so here is is God telling Moses that's going to happen. But he tells them that with a purpose. You will notice in verse 19, he says, Therefore, write this song down. And teach it to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. So verses 19 through 22 is God saying, no, Moses, I've got a second song for you. You know, when you think about the song of Moses, we're used to Exodus 15, the victory song. You know, look how God wiped out the Egyptians and threw them in the sea. Well, here's the second song of Moses. And God says, what it is, is it's going to be called as a witness against Israel. You're going to teach them and they're going to know this song. And their song is going to be so stuck in their head and be taught to future generations. So that when they rebel and turn away against God, they're going to remember the song. And this song will stand as a witness against them so that they will know what they have done against God and why these judgments are falling against them. And so that's what you see then as the description is given after writing this song. You see in verse 23, the Lord tells Joshua to be strong and courageous uh, for you will bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them and I will be, be with you. Verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried, carried the ark of the Lord, take the book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? I mean, here's Moses going, okay, God told me what's going to happen. And I believe it because I've seen it with my own eyes. You're rebellious even right now while I'm with you. How much more will you be rebellious when I go? And so that's what the song then was intended for, was to be a statement against their rebellion, to remind them of their rebellion. And I I want you to kind of get a, a, a picture of this because it is interesting that Moses doesn't pull any punches, but simply just puts it straight out there. You guys are going to be sinful. You're going to fail. You're going to rebel. And it's because of your stubborn hearts. I'd be like, 
That's what I preached against back, you know, in that last sermon. Do you remember? That's what Moses has been telling them again and again is your hearts are wrong and you're going to fail and the blessings and the curses are going to come upon you. And the motivation that Moses must have is to try to awaken their hearts and to open their eyes and see God recognizes the rebellion that lies ahead of you. Don't do that. Do not choose to rebel against the Lord your God. And so then you'll notice chapter 32, all of chapter 30, almost all of chapter 32 then is the description of the song. I wish we had time to go through all the details, but I'd like to just outline this song for you because it basically has three simple movements that they would be singing, if you can imagine, as the lyrics moved along. First, in the first four verses, there's just an acknowledgement of God's perfection, how good God is proclaiming His greatness. He is our rock. His work is perfect. Massive proclamation about the glory of God and the name of God. This is who He is. And then from verses 5 to 18, after acknowledging how perfect God is, now we're going to talk about how bad we are. And so it is an acknowledgement about the people's imperfections and how they do not do what is, what is right. And then from verse 19 to verse 35, you have a call for the people to recognize the justice of God. You can imagine how that song would work. Everything that God does is perfect. And we are imperfect and we have not done what God says. Therefore, God is just in His judgments and He is righteous in all His ways. Because remember, this is a witness against their rebellion when they sing the song. And so you can see how that would work. God is right, we are wrong, we are being judged because God is right and we are wrong. This is how that song goes. We should put some of those in our song books. I think we would love to sing those. We are going to eternal punishment because we didn't do what God said. You can imagine those songs would never fly. We would not want to sing that. We want to sing, sing and be happy. You know, we don't, we don't want these kinds of things. But notice God issued this song. This will be a judgment against you, a witness against you when you do not do what is right. And it will be in their ears and in in their minds. A couple of keys that I'd like to zero in on that are found uh, in this song. If you'll notice verse 26 of chapter 32, where God says, I would have said I would cut them in pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all of this. Notice that in the very song is the statement, Israel should be completely wiped out and cut off. And the only reason that's going to not happen is because I don't want people to think that that wasn't because of God, <laughs> that God was not behind all of this. So we see that statement over and over again, like the prophets, especially that God acts for his own name and for his own glory. And here he shows mercy to Israel who should be cut off and wiped out. But for his own name and for his own glory, he chooses not to not to do that. And in fact, you notice in verse 36, after describing the wickedness, notice, actually look in verse 28 first, for they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them. So he's, here's the song of how foolish they are for rebelling against God. And yet in the face of all of that, verse 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people. And have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. 
And there is none remaining bond or free. It's such a love that in the very song, after they experience judgment, God is going to look at his people when they are decimated and have nothing and say, I have compassion for my people and now I'm going to rescue them. And so even the song itself describes the progression of the sins of the people and how God is going to be a rescuer. I want you to notice in the song as well how he says he's going to rescue them because this is an amazing picture of God's love. Verse 37. Then he will say, where are the gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who are afar, who, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Now, that might sound a little bit strange, but put this all together. In verse 36, God says, I'm going to vindicate my people. and I'm going to have compassion on them again. And I'm going to essentially be their God, seeing that their power is gone. And I'm going to restore that to them. And then God is going to say, where are your gods? Where are your idols that you trusted in? And you can get a sense of the framework of the question. See, Israel, what you did was you lived your life not trusting in God, but trusting in your idols and in your false gods. And what is going to be the result of that? Judgment. And now God is going to ask the question, how well did your idols help you in your distress? Where were they in all of your difficulty? How much support did they give you in your times of trouble? And of course, the rhetorical answer is they didn't. That's why they went off into captivity with none to help and none to rescue. You put all of your hope in wood and stone and metal and things like that. Well, let's see them save you. And now God kind of comes on the scene and rescues them and says, Now, where are these gods that you put your hope in? How did they do for you through all of your travail? Where were they in all of your difficulty? And what I love about this is what God is essentially doing is destroying our idols so that we won't trust in them anymore. But do you see the way God does that? The way God is destroying their idols is by putting them through trials and suffering so that they will see that their hopes are in things that are false and break that false hope so that they will put their hope in the true and living God. He puts them through the travail and through the difficulty and through the pain and has their power broken and scattered off of the land so that they would understand these things do not rescue. These things do not help. And I hope that we will see that that is still true. That one of the reasons God allows trials and difficulty and pain and all that we go through in this life, one of the primary reasons for it And so that we will stop trusting in false things to realize the empty power that is behind it and to trust the living God. I know we have all experienced this to one degree or another. One of my favorite illustrations, because we all raise our hands and experience this, is anytime you ever seem to get ahead financially, you know, you get a little bit of boom of money or you get the pay raise. What always happens Something big breaks or there's some kind of extreme financial situation that happens right after you just go, oh, I'm just going to get it. No, you're not getting ahead. Nope, nope, there it goes. It happens every time. And that's just a small idea of what God is saying. 
I'm allowing these things to happen to you so that you will understand what a weakness it is to trust in wealth or in career or in any kind of tangible physical thing in this life. It won't rescue you. It won't save you. It won't help you. It'll always let you down. And so here is God saying, I'm causing that to happen so that you will stop wasting your lives, putting your hope in things or in people rather than hoping in God. And so I love that God in verse 37 just stands up and says, so where are your gods that were your rock that you took your refuge in? Where is that hope now when you rested all of your life on that and that simply slipped away from you? The picture that God wants them to see is that only God can help. And that's what verses 39 through 43 describe. Notice the sovereignty of God in verse 39. See now that I, even I am he, there is no God beside me. And so he again describes of all the things that that he does to the nations and does to peoples. The whole point is to see it's me. I am the one in charge. You need to put your hope in me. And trust in me. Let the word of God be your very life. And that's what then Moses stands up and says in verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. You can imagine after God gives this to Moses. Now all the congregations there. Moses goes, all right, here's the words. God is perfect. You all are imperfect. And God is going to judge and he is righteous in his judgments, you know, singing this whole song to them so that they would have this in their minds. And verse 45, Moses then finished speaking with all the, all the words to Israel. He said to them, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children. They may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. May those words really strike a chord in us. These words of God and this command of God, the law of God. They are not empty words. Moses tells them and says, these things should be your very life. It should be your everything. It's what you breathe in is this your whole being is the life that god has given through his word and it is through these words then that you will live long on the land and so you can imagine moses and his final words to the people saying don't let these words be nothing to you these words are powerful words and they are life know the perfection of god know your imperfection and know that god is a just god and that he then will bring judgment now notice the location liter- in a literary way. What we have in verses 48 to the end of chapter 32 is the reason for Moses' death. And we've seen that in Numbers. We've seen that earlier in Deuteronomy where Moses stood up and said in his first sermon, I'm not going because of you all. Remember, <laughs> he tells them it's because of your, you pushed me to it. You caused this to happen. But now yet again, this comes into the book in verse 48. The very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of a barren, the Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. And view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession and die on the mountain, which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother died in Mount Hor. And was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh 
in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Notice just kind of a reminder here. Moses, you're not going in because you broke faith. We saw that. The Numbers records it directly as rebelling against God. He did not treat God as holy. Now, why do that? Is this, you know, God rubbing it into Moses as if he doesn't know why he's not allowed to go into the land? I, I submit to you the location being at the very end of Deuteronomy is that this is a warning to Israel. Don't make the same mistake that Moses did. Do not be unfaithful and rebel. And do not forget the holiness of God that you would totally mistake that God is not going to do anything about His holiness, about His very character, about who He is. It has been the big warning of the book of Numbers. Do not rebel against God. And God is a holy God and He will maintain that holiness. And Moses lost those two things there in the wilderness with the waters of Meribah. And here is this reminder, be faithful to the Lord. Treat God as holy. Do not treat Him as common. And in particular, treat Him as holy before the people. Make sure that God receives the honor and the glory. Make sure that He is always put at the forefront because that's what Moses didn't do. Do you remember the words? Must we again bring you water from this rock, you rebels? He took the glory that belonged to God and placed it squarely on Himself in that moment. God said, you were not faithful and you didn't regard me as holy. This is a warning to the people as they go into the land. Do not do what Moses did. If they want success in the land, you must stay faithful to to God and you must treat Him as holy. Give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves for who He is. Chapter 33, look through that chapter, but you will notice that what Moses does is he now gives the final blessings upon the people. Final blessings on the tribes. These are going to be the final words that he makes before them and blessing them to their future and what is going to happen to them. Some of the great words of how these blessings end, like in verse 26, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help through the sky in his majesty. What a neat picture. There is nobody like God who rides through the heavens to bring you help. Keep that picture of God in your minds. And then a reminder of who they are in verse 29. You are a people that have been saved by God. Verse 29, happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Great ending to the blessings. See who God is. There is no one like him. And to understand that you are a people saved by God. Notice then how the book closes in chapter 34. Then we'll make an important application. Chapter 34 verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. 
And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho and the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> I give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him there in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed. And his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. That is an ending. What an amazing declaration about Moses. First, did you see that Moses didn't die of old age? I love that line. His eyes were undimmed and his figure was unabated. He's ready to go. There's no reason for him not to be able to go into the promised land except he sinned. It wasn't, well, you know, he's coming to that age. And that's when he said earlier, I'm not allowed to go in and come out anymore. It's not because of his age when he says I'm 120 years old. It's I'm 120 years old and God says I have to pass the torch to Joshua. Because of what I've done. But it wasn't by his health. I love that statement to be 120 years old and his vigor unabated. Did you notice also in this the glory that is described of Moses? Just beautiful descriptions. There's not a prophet like him that had arisen in Israel. He is deemed the great prophet to the people of God. In particular because... He was able to speak to God face to face. This was an unparalleled relationship. If you remember back in Numbers when Aaron and Miriam are complaining against Moses because Moses had married the Cushite, the answer that God gives is, how could you dare speak against Moses? I speak to him like nobody else. To other people I speak in visions and dreams. But with Moses, I speak to him face to face. It's mouth to mouth. There was no concealing. And we've seen that throughout this, this journey with Moses. Is that Moses goes up on the mountain and just talks to God. And God talks to him. And Moses enters the tent of meeting. And God talks to him and meets him there. And whole conversations happen. And then Moses comes out and his face is shining. And he tells everybody what God had told him. What an amazing, amazing relationship that existed between the Lord 
and with Moses. And not only is he the greatest prophet because of that intimate relationship, but you will notice the emphasis that nobody did the signs and wonders that he did. The mighty power that was exhibited through Moses in leading the people and destroying Egypt and Pharaoh and all of his servants, as well as the great deeds that were accomplished by Moses. And I want us to recall that this is an important ending to the life of Moses for a couple of reasons. Number one, remember that Moses gave a very important declaration in one of his sermons about halfway through this book is Moses told the people and said, there's going to be another prophet who's going to arise like me. And that was no small statement to say another prophet was going to come like Moses because now the ending for Moses is he is unparalleled. He is unparalleled in his power. He is unparalleled in his ability to have a relationship with God Face to face. And friends, this is what the Gospel of John, if we had another hour, we'd just like skim through the Gospel of John. Because John's purpose, that Gospel, is to show Jesus being the new Moses who comes and accomplishes the new Exodus. That's what the signs are there for, is to show. But John 1 certainly speaks of that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's right there in the very presence of God. He's there right before Him. And so a beautiful picture of the relationship that that Jesus has with the Father. A passage we know well, John 1 and verse 14. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You're getting that same declaration that when you see Jesus, you have this unparalleled relationship like Moses, but greater than Moses. When you see Jesus, you are seeing God Himself and you are getting the very words of God Himself in a similar way like with Moses. And remember that Jesus performs miracles like no one else. Remember, it's in John's account where we have a healing of a blind man. And it is specifically reminded to us, where do you ever see the blind healed anywhere? And it's never happened. But Jesus arrives and performs unparalleled miracles. Because only God can give sight to the blind. Only God can give light to the world. And that's what's the symbol that's there. Is just as Moses did signs that had not been seen before, Jesus arrives and does signs that have never been seen before. What was supposed to happen was the people were supposed to say, this is the new Moses and it is time for the new Exodus. It is time for our salvation and to see the rescue of of the people of God and the rescue of the world happening. This ending with Moses is a huge ending in regards to the relationship and the picture of who Moses is. 
so that people would see exactly who Jesus is. One final thing. Verse verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. This is the first time we see that attached to Moses. And we get to the end of Moses' life and we have watched what he has done and his leadership, his righteousness, his godliness. One of the big things highlighted his humility in leading the people and being the voice piece of God to the people. We've seen him be a mediator, and intercessor on behalf of the people, willing to give his own life to rescue the people of Israel. We've seen these things over and over again. And at the end of all of this, the title that God gives to Moses seems so simple, but is a tremendous honor. Moses, the servant of the Lord. I think we may underappreciate what that title means when God says that. When God says, this is the servant of the Lord. This is the one who has carried out my work. To say that at the very end of his life, for all that's been said and done, this is my servant. The reason why I believe that is especially beautiful is you may know of a parable, parable that speaks of the talents. Where we have three individuals who are given a separate amount of talents. The first two go out and do the work of the master. You might recall then what the master says when they've gone and done the work. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, There would not be a greater honor than to be able to come to the judgment seat of Christ and for the life lived, for the Lord to just simply say, that's a servant of the Lord. And what I want you to see is as Jesus told parables, he was expressing that that hope is possible. That if we would live our lives faithfully before our God to keep his holiness to show him as glorious, to honor him in our lives. That's the title that awaits us, that we also would be able just to hear those simple words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the servant of the Lord in all that we've done. Allow that to be the motivation for your life. That that's what we want above all else. Forget idols, forget false gods, forget the things of this life. We want to hear God say that. You are a servant of God. That you belong to me. Well done. Come on in and enjoy all that God has promised, all that God has to offer. I dare say we will not look back at a single thing in this life and say, well, I sure wish I'd spent my time wasting more on the things of this world. 
rather than entering into the joy that is set before us as a servant of God. Sacrifice the things of this world. Give up on the idols. They're useless and weak. And serve the living God today. Can we help you do that? Will you turn away from your sins and come to Jesus so that you too can hear that great, great honorific title when the days are done? be a servant of God. Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?